session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any psychological or emotional issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show and suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I begin, um, I want to bring your attention to something um, that's very important for me. Next month, at the end of July, I'll be going back to an orphanage in Mexico, Ranchos de los Niños, um, where we the, there's a group that will be trying to put a solar panel there to get solar energy there. But we're fundraising for the trip and for everything that's involved. And some of you have already donated, which I'm very uh, touched by. I really do appreciate that. Um, but I did want to bring your attention that if you want to help me in raising funds, um, you can go to my Facebook page, my Twitter, or my Instagram. On Instagram, it's currently on my profile, the link where you can donate and thank you in advance. But if you even can give a dollar, that would be great uh, for these wonderful kids down there. And next month, I'll get to go see them and we'll tell you more about that. So hope you can join me in that uh, process of helping out with these kids down in Mexico. Um, and I'll talk a bit about more about that maybe on today's show or next week. Um, of course, uh, it's hard not to talk about what happened in Tehran today, or earlier today, with the terror attacks. Um, as far as I've seen now, 12 um, have been announced dead and at least 42 others wounded. I don't know if those numbers have changed, but um, I was very sad to hear that news. It was actually hard to find the news. I was just talking to Rahman before we started the show that I was watching CNN and didn't really see any coverage of it for a good period of time that I was watching this morning. Um, and, of course, there's lots of issues related to what the media covers and does not cover. Um, when there's terror attacks in the Middle East, they get a lot less attention than when they're in other places. It's horrible no matter where it happens, but we do see that we give our attention differently. And that's something that I wanted to talk about. We know that when we hear about tragic stories, we can have different reactions based on who the victims were. Um, and in this case, because for many of the people listening, and I know not everyone listening is Iranian, but for anyone who has Iranian background or in Iran, it felt like this time they attacked us or the attack was on us. And it, it could be idealistic to think that we would see everyone exactly the same. I, I actually hope we should strive towards that, that we see a human family. But we know that more than likely we're going to feel a different feeling when we see people that we feel closer to being hurt. Now, again, this is something that it almost is hard for me to say because I don't think it's good to think of it that way, but I think it's realistic to a certain degree. Um, for example, I go to Skid Row 
very often. I remember one night, maybe two years ago, there was an older Iranian gentleman who came through the line to get food. And it was one of the first times I'd seen an Iranian there um, asking for help, asking for food. And I would be lying if I said I didn't feel something different when I looked at this man who I could see as my father or my uncle, he was kind of slightly maybe older generation than me, but I could see as a family member, a direct family member, I did feel something different. And I even thought about it back then. I was like, wow, you know, I do feel something different. I almost felt some guilt. Well, why do I care more about him than I care about other people? Shouldn't it be equal? But as I said, I think absolutely we should be striving towards seeing everyone as equal, but it's not not always that easy, or we're not always going to start at that point. So we should remember this when we look at what happened today. And I know we're still learning more about what happened and what's going on. But for many people, I know this hit more home that, okay, there's this terrorist attack. But we should remember that when other people are being killed or being hurt or suffering in some way, although we might not see them as part of our group, we have to realize it's still human suffering and we should really care and make sure we don't forget that, that we don't think, okay, well, when it's somewhere else, it doesn't matter or doesn't matter to me. And we can over time change who us includes. So we have us and them very often. Sometimes if you have a certain job or profession, you might feel us and them. Religious groups very often feel us and them. Ethnicity or country of origin, we have an us and a them. Um, but the more we actually connect with people from who are quote-unquote different from us, we can change what that us includes and realize, okay, these people are just like you and me, so I don't see them as a different group. Um, when I went to this orphanage last year, I mean, these kids were kids. They weren't Mexican children. They were children that were in uh, an unfortunate situation, and I had compassion for them. Um, when I was in Costa Rica and was working with at a school for deaf children, at the beginning they were deaf children to me, but then they were just children when I realized, of course, that's not what's the most defining factor about them. So we can expand this us and them. And in moments like this, when we're very heartbroken about something that happened um, for many of you, either in the country you were born in or a country where you might even still have family or a very a country that means a lot to you. you know, I understand the grieving and you need to do that, be sad about it and, and go through that process. But it's also important for us to remember that wherever this suffering is happening is an us. It's part of who we are and we have to uh, try to expand that circle of concern that we have, that circle of compassion for the people that we care about. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So anywhere that people are suffering, we want to have that type of care and concern for them. Um, the book for this week uh, is A Natural History of Human Morality by Michael Tomasello. And uh, I've been reading that over the past few days, and it's it's a very scientifically written book. I wasn't aware of that when I uh, ordered it and, and started to read it. But it talks about how human morality has evolved and how we actually evolved this idea of morality. A big part of it is that it made sense to take care of each other because we were interdependent. Now, I'll talk more about the book next week, but this idea that we are interdependent 
And that actually, the size of the group that we're interdependent on can change over time, and it definitely has throughout history. If we look back to our earliest human ancestors, they had a small group of people that they lived with, and it was important for them to work together, one, to get food and to make sure they always had enough food. For example, hunting of big animals is not something that you really can do alone. You need a group and maybe a big group of men together, and then you share the reward, but you have to work together. Or even gathering food might be something where you, you could benefit from working together. Also, they had to defend themselves against neighboring groups because there were um, limited resources. Sometimes if groups you know, interacted with each other or came into contact with each other, it would become violent potentially because of the fight over resources. And it was important to protect and support your own group. So we have this psychology within us, and I'll talk more about that next week. But we know we have that psychology within us where we see our group as people we care about, are concerned about, and want to support. That's why we might feel more when we see someone who looks just like us suffering. It creates a stronger reaction in us and a stronger desire to help because there is something in our psychology that's saying you need to take care of those that are like you because your own survival depends on it. So again, here we see that part where although someone can seem very compassionate and loving and altruistic, there is a part where it benefits us in some way. So because we want our own genes and our own survival uh, to increase, we do want to help people that are like us. But as I was saying before, we can change that scope of what us is. But first we have to accept that this is in some ways a human tendency, that if we see someone suffering that we see as more similar to us, we're going to have more of a reaction to someone we don't see as similar. That That's part of being human, and we have to accept that. But at the same time, what we don't have to accept is who we see as us and them. If you've never interacted with a particular group of people, whether it's an ethnicity, um, a, a religious group, or for example, sexual orientation, if you've never had close contact with someone from another group, they're going to see much more like a them. And when you see them suffering, you're not going to feel as much. But when you connect and interact more with people from other groups, their humanness becomes more clear and you do connect to them more over time. And you see that there isn't as much of an us and a them distinction, that we can expand that. And I think it's up to all of us to recognize that that us and them distinction hurts us much more than it helps us and before we were very interdependent within our group to survive but in the world becoming more of a global community and because of the ways that we can affect each other as we see in this attack but also with things like nuclear bombs and other things that we can do we are much more interdependent on the whole world now people on the opposite side of the planet can end our lives Whereas before that wasn't something we even thought about or considered or maybe even knew that there was people many miles away or whatever that even meant. So in our psychology, we're not used to this idea, but we have to recognize that we're interdependent as a planet. Even things we do to affect the planet, such as how we affect the environment, that affects the whole world. So the way I do something here can affect people thousands of miles away because of the effect on the environment. So there's so many ways that we're interdependent and we have to still move towards recognizing this in our own brains and our psychology that there isn't just this us and them the whole world is an us we all are interdependent on each other to make the world work 
and to survive. So again, of course, very sad news coming out of Tehran uh, this morning and today, and we're still learning more about it, but I'm sure many people are saddened to hear about what has happened there and unfortunately what's going on in other other countries as well. And remember, when you think of the suffering other places, think of how you felt today when you read about this news. And for someone that was their uh, homeland or that their people, and then start to recognize that we're all one family, they are all our people. Let's get to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, yes, hi. Um, is, I have a question for you. Uh, my oldest daughter, she has um, planned to go to uh, medical school. Uh-huh. A bright kid, um, academically extra uh, curriculums, everything set. Um, she got, she did not get to the one of the UCs, one of the two that she wanted it to go. Uh-huh. Uh, she's accepted to one of the Cal State. Um, she's completely okay with it. She is very happy. She's moving on. Um, I, I have a difficulty. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, I'm not one of those parents that I'm pushing, and not at all. She wanted it to become a physician. Uh, she has worked really hard uh, throughout her, you know, last uh, high schools and before that, 4.4 GPA, high SAT. Um, I am more disappointed that um, I thought she deserved for all the work she's done. She should have been to the, one of the UCs that she wanted it to go. Um, so my question is, how do I calm myself down? Uh, I'm definitely not angry with her. I'm not uh, bickering. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm not doing any of that. I'm, I'm, we are both, my wife and I, proud of her, uh, everything. But inside is something telling me what went wrong. What, what, what's wrong with this picture? Wow, okay. What, what went wrong? I mean, I think a lot went right. You're, you're getting into a medical school in the United States can be very difficult and challenging. Um, and going to a Cal State or whatever school she went to, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, it does seem like it's more about you than it is about her. I think so. Yeah. So what do you think it is means for you that she's going to still a great school, um, but not that is it? I'm wondering if it's, I'm sure you're very proud of her, but was there also a feeling of it was making you more proud of yourself by telling other people my daughter goes here or no, she does that okay not not at all i my my thought process is and i have very limited um uh, information that moving on to uh, grad school going to medical school i'm thinking with a with a highly competitive environment and very talented student all over the world Maybe it would be more of a disadvantage if someone is from Cal State 
rather than someone from UCLA or UC Berkeley. That's that's the only thing. Okay, and it might be true, but I mean that's you know you could have concern, but you said almost like anger before, uh, you know, but accepting the reality of it is is obviously the, what we always want to do but you know she got into a very good school i'm still i'm not sure what the are you angry at the schools for not accepting her what are you feeling well one of the things um she has some peers that they're in the same um academic advancement things like that one of the things might have been i don't know if it was a mistake or not a lot of her friends that got to uh, uc san diego uc irvine uc santa barbara they uh, selected, uh, un, um, they didn't select a, uh, a major, uh, undeclared. And it seems like they got, and uh, half of them, they had lower um, SAT score, they had lower GPA. They had not much of the extra stuff that they did. Because she chose, she had a plan to go to medical school, she chose biology, mm-hmm. and we're finding out that that is one of the most uh, popular major. So, again, put her in disadvantage. And sometimes I feel like a, as a father, I should have done more research. I, shouldn't, I should have done more to put her in a better place for success. These are the things kind of okay. going in my head. Yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, uh, you're angry with yourself. You're angry, again, in a situation that's very, very good. You're you're making it very painful, and and you know something really negative. A, a lot of people that go into med school do have a major like biology. Um, they have to take a lot of they have to take all those science classes anyway. It, it can make a difference. Uh, I understand it can, but I'm you know it seems like there's you're making it sound like some kind of tragedy happened, and we have to figure out why did this really bad thing happen. And how was what was your daughter's reaction to? not getting into those med schools, but getting into the ones she did get into? Uh, she's completely fine. Uh, okay. like a, she is, she's very happy. Um, As the, she should the, be. The, yeah. Um, the, the, the college that she got accepted because of the high academic, I think within a week or 10 days after submission, like a late last year, they immediately accepted her to many of those colleges. Okay. So, she says, Daddy, I'm very happy I'm accepted. I'm going to college. And, again, um, and I am too. And <laughs> well, I don't, I don't feel that. You might, you might be saying that, but it doesn't sound like you're, you're very happy about it. Because you're trying well, to figure no, no. out what, what went wrong. I mean, people don't try to figure out what went wrong of something good. You know, people don't end up somewhere they want to be. We ended up at this restaurant. How, why did we get here? What's, what happened wrong? I shouldn't have done this. You, you're making it sound like something really, really bad happened. Even if she didn't get into any med schools, which is a problem, she would reapply. But it sounds almost like you're, that's where you're at in your head. Like she, she did. I know you're saying you don't put pressure on her, but it sounds like you really do and even put pressure on yourself that I should have done more than my daughter got into a specific medical school, not the one she got into. Yeah. Um, what do you <laughs> suggest? I mean, it's kind of uh, said and done. Uh, what, what do you suggest I should tell myself or practice that um, accept this reality? 
more more easily. Well, I mean, we can look at the maybe the things you can say to yourself, and I'm sh- there's obviously a lot we can talk about there. But I'm trying to still understand what this means to you. You know, how do you see yourself in your daughter daughter situation academically? Did you get to where you wanted to get to? Are you proud of yourself when it comes to your career, your education? How, how do you? How where are you in those regards? Um, I am with my particular situation. Uh, I'm I'm very uh, completely satisfied with what I have accomplished. Uh, education, um, uh, academically and uh, business-wise, and most importantly, our family. So all of that is great. Okay. Um, Do you have any yeah, other I don't children? I'm sorry. Do you have any other children? I do. Yeah, we have a younger younger daughter. Okay. Uh, How yeah. old is she? Uh, she is twelve. Oh, twelve. Okay, so that's pretty. They probably have a pretty big age gap. Gap, maybe like ten years or something like that. No, no, no. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, the the daughter that we're talking about, we're talking about from high school to um, undergrad college. It's not medical school. It's just oh, a, okay. I'm yeah. pretty sure you. Okay, I heard you say medical school. No, no, I said her plan is to go to medical oh, school. Oh, I see. Okay. So she's only 17. Okay, I misunderstood that part. Okay. This is, this is just going to undergrad for a bachelor to I continue. See. Okay. And that's why my the concern that came about, oh, believe me, if she accepted to any medical school anywhere across the country, I would never touch that <laughs> phone and call you. Yeah. It's just I'm looking at, like, a, in the future, and that's what I was kind of, comparing and thinking that, you know, if someone comes, many of these students or individuals who will apply for medical school down the road, they are getting education in uh, more uh, prestigious institutions. And that's what is kind of uh, brings all these uh, thoughts in my head. Right, which, I mean, I can understand you having a concern about them, but at the end of the day, it's going to be up to your your daughter to make the best and figure out what she wants to do and how she's going to make that happen and give her that um, responsibility and, and for yourself. I do feel like some of it is the feeling of um, how it sounds to other people to say my daughter's going to this school, uh, but I'm wondering, what is that like for you to tell people my daughter's going not, to this school? Not, not actually, because the the, the, the the college that she's accepted, I went there, my wife went there, uh, my brother, my brother-in-law, all our family went to that particular college. So we are alumni, we're, it's, it's fine. And it truly is not because I wanted it to um, uh, show off to peers and families and friends and whomever. You know, I've, I've listened to your dad long, long enough to know better. Okay. I'm not. This not. It definitely is not for, for the name. Uh, it's just part of it is as much as effort she put, and she really worked hard. Um, it, it just uh, this is. Uh, it, I thought she should have been accepted at least to one of those two UCs. That that's it. Well, you know, I understand you want the best for for your daughter, but then we also have to accept the reality because the way you're talking about it she's going to feel that from you that in some way you're disappointed 
in her or the result of what happened. So we have to accept the reality, you know, and also even accepting for yourself. When my daughter was applying to undergrad universities, I gave her the freedom and the responsibility of figuring out what major to apply under and to to do everything she did. And there's probably more to it than just that, but you gave her that space. It wasn't up to you to make that decision for her. I'm sure she talked to lots of people and made that decision for herself. So part of it, you have to forgive yourself that you, you quote unquote, you know, you should have done more. Or I should have told her not to apply for this major, apply for undecided, and that would improve her chances. And also accepting that where she is is great. You know, she's going to a very good school, and if she wants to go to med school, she obviously still can. So does it change? Maybe if you go to a more prestigious school, it makes it easier. It can, but also sometimes you get worse grades there, and that could affect things too. So there's a lot of things going on. But a big part is you have to accept that the reality, what the reality is, and that the reality isn't something bad, isn't some tragedy. It's something very much more than okay. It's very good. And then trust your daughter to continue making the choices for herself and realize it's not going to be up to you to, to figure out what she needs to do next or what's going to improve her chances. That's going to be up to her. Yeah. And uh, again, I'm definitely, uh, I've tried very hard to um, not expressing how I uh, think or feel about that. And, and I, yeah, I, I agree um, you know, this is this was her decision, mm-hmm. um, and and she got accepted to many of these other colleges as well. Some of the private one too, with with a little bit of a scholarship. So she chose this one, and yeah, we just give her that freedom to okay. um, to do that. Yeah, but so but for yourself, it's been hard to come to peace with this or come to terms with this. Yeah, I I think uh, once in um, in maybe two and a half months or so that she gets actually started, she's going, I think I will be uh, more relieved and say, okay, this is, she started her next chapter in her life, and now she's uh, becoming a, a young woman and going to college. I think I will be okay with that then. Okay. Well, I mean, I hope it can come before then, because like I said, she's going to feel from you what, how you feel about it, you know, as much as you might try to hide it from her or not show it to her, you know, you're making it very clear, like she should have gotten somewhere better. So in some level, you, you use the word disappointment her, yourself. So I'm not saying you're going to tell her you're disappointed in her, but she's going to feel that. And so rather than this excitement, of I'm starting college and this new journey, you're going to give her this message that you didn't do enough, or this isn't something to be too excited about. And so I would say, yes, maybe in two months you'll feel differently, but I'd work on that now of accepting, okay, she worked really hard in undergrad, and I'll tell you, getting into four-year colleges right out of high school is not easy. It's very difficult. Um, so it's much more competitive than it was even when I was applying for undergrad. So it's a very different type of a thing. Also, I mean, if she even wanted to transfer, I wouldn't put that pressure on her. She, of course, can, but that's up to her, and I don't want you to put that pressure on her so she could still even have that opportunity if she wanted that. But it's accepting that what's happening right now is great and is worth celebrating. And especially when she's happy about it, you know, um, it's not about what, what you feel about it. It's what she feels. If she feels I'm so excited to go to the school, I can't wait. That's all that matters. Not that, okay, well, dad wanted me to go to UC or to somewhere else. You want to make sure she feels that you feel about it, 
how she's seeing it. It's what she wants. Just like if she has a relationship, even if the guy is not exactly who you want her to be with, but if she's really happy and in love, it's sure. up to you to show her that I'm very happy for you, not I would have chose someone else for you or I would want you to pick someone else. So it's going to be her life, and as she gets older, even more it's going to be that way. And even with your younger daughter, you know, you're getting this practice with her, and I hope also you'll carry that forward with the next one as she gets closer to that age to not put too much pressure to make her feel that, you know, you're proud of her and just want her to do her best and wherever she ends up, she ends up and make sure you're you're with her. If she's sad about what's happening, you empathize with her. If she's happy about it, you also empathize with that and share that excitement with her. So clearly to me, there's something here about it's more about you than your daughter. And that's why it's good that you see that and you have to recognize that this is for you to come to peace with without your daughter's really necessarily you know, communication or consent. You have to just come to terms yourself. She's excited. She's happy as she should be. And she's going to have her undergraduate life and career and, and see where it takes her. But, but pulling back more, I think would be good rather than, than trying to make sure she feels any of that pressure from you. Yeah. Thank you. No, I, um, I've been very sensitive about that. Yeah. Um, and it, in, encouraging, uh, as much as I, uh, and any opportunity I had, uh, so okay. thank you so much for your time. Really My pleasure. Nice talking. You have a great day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tawakwi. session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, studio number 310-441-0555. A topic that comes up a lot on this show, and just was the previous caller, was obviously related to parenting, is how to raise our kids and what to do to raise our kids effectively. Now, uh, people call with lots of questions of, for example, how long to breastfeed or potty training, how do you do it, bedtimes as they get older, and there's a million questions to think about um, and to deal with as parents. But what's important for parents to do, there's a a few things I want to talk about today. One is we have to prepare for these things before we uh, have the children. It's like trying to build a building without a blueprint. You get all the materials there and you start putting stuff together and you realize, oh, there's not enough space for this. We don't have enough of that and nothing looks exactly like you want it to be. When it comes to having children, we want to do the preparation work before. We don't want to try to cross the bridges while we're still trying to build the bridges, so to speak, where we're um, figuring out, oh, we need to deal with this now, and how do we deal with it? Yes, of course, there are going to be hundreds of things you can't prepare for, or even more, really, and just how you have to interact with your child and things you have to determine. But we want to do a lot of this prep work beforehand. We have to put a lot of time into it, Um, reading books, going to maybe classes or seminars, even potentially going to therapy can be helpful. We want to put a lot of work 
into it. And especially today, I wanted to talk about as co-parents. Now, sometimes we talk about the term co-parenting when we're looking at divorced couples and how it is very important for them to, although they've dissolved their marriage, they've ended that relationship, but they can't end that relationship that them two and them two alone are the parents of these children or that child or children, whatever the case may be. And they need to work together to make sure they're doing the best job they can in that process. So I will still use that term, but even in talking with potentially married couples or couples who are in a relationship who are having children and the importance of parenting together, co-parenting. So to begin with, it can be wonderful to study these things together in advance, read books together, parenting from the inside out, listening to CDs, whatever it might be together for two reasons. One is because there's a lot to learn and you'll learn together and that'll be nice, but also the other very important part is to make sure you're on the same page about parenting. And this is very, very important. So often I see clients in therapy and they come in and they have such different philosophies and views on parenting and they don't think it's going to be an issue. And then they have kids and now all of a sudden there are all these big issues that come up. And this is important because not only does this lead to conflict, which is going to create stress in the household, which then is going to be absorbed by the baby and the children. But also, as the children get older and they see you fighting about how to raise them, it's hard for the children not to take that personally. So when they see mommy and daddy arguing about bedtime and it becomes a big fight, they think, oh, they're fighting about me. If I wasn't here or if I didn't have this issue, they wouldn't be fighting. And that affects their self-esteem or mommy and daddy are fighting about what to feed me or if they should feed me, I'm bad. Or maybe I shouldn't even eat at all or ask for food. So it can lead to issues related to how this child is now going to look at food and eating and, and what they should and shouldn't eat. So the big problem is that not only does it lead to conflict, but it's conflict that has a very detrimental effect on your children. They're going to be hurt by this and they're going to take it personally I'm the reason why they're fighting. I'm bad. I'm the problem. So parents need to think about a lot of these questions and have lots of conversations about parenting. How do you want to discipline children or not discipline them? And you really want to make sure you're on the same page. I've worked with so many families where they have such different ways of looking at discipline that it creates huge issues, um, again, based on the conflict, but also the inconsistency that the child is experiencing. And this is another issue that affects the child when it comes to parents not being on the same page. When mommy is home, they can watch four hours of TV, but when daddy is home, they can watch no TV at all. Or when mommy is setting the bedtime, it's 9 p.m. When daddy is setting the bedtime, it could be 10, 30, 11, or whenever the kid wants to fall asleep. But when the mom and dad are not on the same page, when co-parents aren't on the same page, the child is left with this unstable, inconsistent environment, which is going to contribute to a feeling of anxiety and not knowing what to expect in life, which is not good. The reason why we want to set structure and boundaries for our children is that it gives them a sense of consistency, a sense of I can know what to expect in this world. I can know how things are going to go. I can even predict how they're going to go. Sometimes a child says, I want to stay up past my bedtime. And we might think I'm being the cool or good parent by letting them stay up. But really, this contributes to a sense of 
instability within them. In the moment, they might say, yay, this is fun, I'm having a good time, but we have to be aware of the longer-term consequence that the child now is dealing with this issue of, I don't know what to expect for tomorrow. I don't know that if mommy says this, it means this, or if daddy says this, this is what's going to happen. And also mommy and daddy seem to do things very differently, and that doesn't feel very good. So parents have to have lots and lots of conversations about what we're going to do and how we're going to deal with our children. Discipline, again, is a very big one. I would hope that no one spanks their kids or hits their kids uh, and even worse, of course, I would expect no one to do that or hope no one does that. But sometimes parents have different views about this and they don't realize until the kid is there. And imagine how you feel when you see your husband or your wife spank your child when you're against spanking. And now there's nothing you really do about it. It's happening now. And if you start to have that fight in front of the kid, the kid is already in a stressful situation. It just becomes worse. So talk to your your partner about that. Is that something you are at all open to. And I hope, again, your standpoint is going to be, I'm definitely against it 100%. I don't want it to ever happen to our child, and I want to make sure you see it that same way. Um, how are we going to be about our in-laws being involved or not being involved? What are we going to do? How many children do we want to have? There's really hundreds of questions and conversations that you need to have before you have your children to help prepare you you know, parents do a lot to prepare the room, you know, and that's very nice. They get the room decorated and they put the baby's name and they put certain colors, maybe if it's a boy or a girl or they make it more neutral, whatever it might be, but they put a lot of work in preparing the room. But you also have to prepare the home and prepare yourselves as parents of what are we going to do and how are we going to act as parents together. And I was saying before about people want to know, you know, the, the big questions about, let's say, breastfeeding and changing and feeding and sleeping and sleep training and whatever they need to do. And these things are important. It is good for parents to study them. But oftentimes what I find, especially as the kids get older, more important than finding out what's the best thing to do, it's important for the parents to be a unified front and to work together. So, for example, if you have a five-year-old and when it comes to bedtime, you can maybe research bedtimes and you find the best one. And they say that 8.35 is the best time for a five-year-old to go to sleep. Maybe. I mean, I don't think you'll find anything like that, but let's say. But to me, if you're in a household and let's say you're one parent and you say no matter what, it has to be 8.35 because I read it in this study and I want what's best for my child. But your partner says no, 9 p.m. And now you guys have a big fight over it and you say I have to fight to make it 8.35 even if it's in front of my kid and pull them into the bed you're really hurting your child much more than even if you let them sleep probably at 9 or 9.30 or 10. More important than the actual number or the actual specifics very often is how the parents work together. If bedtime is a pleasant thing, if it's consistently at the same time, and if mom and dad are on the same page about it and treat it as a pleasant and happy type of an experience, that's going to have a much better effect than figuring out the exact minute that your child should be asleep. So parents have to have these conversations. And as the child gets older, you can't have every conversation before the kid is born. I understand their bedtime is going to change, for example, over time. You want to have a lot of conversations, these types of conversations, away from the child. Don't discuss them and argue in front of the child about them, but have almost like parent meetings. And really, that's what I, I think, you know, we have to see parents as a team. We're working together. We're a unit. So we can have almost like team meetings once or twice a week 
just to check in about things, how they're going, and about new things that we are dealing with as parents. What do we have to do now? What are things that are changing? You know, he's been doing this now. What do you think we should do? Or, um, you know, now that he's getting older, maybe we make his bedtime later. Or he's waking up really tired every morning. Maybe we have to make his bedtime earlier or think about other things. But kind of like a team meeting you would have at a workplace where you get together and meet once a week or twice a week. This is the most important role you have in your life. So take that seriously. And as co-parents, let's have that type of a meeting ourselves once or twice a week. When the child is not around, we can have our coffee and talk about um, what's going on and what we can do or what we want to do differently in raising our child and make them feel that things are okay. They don't have to worry about you fighting over it. Now, another thing that happens is as the child gets older and actually from a very young age, you can engage them in this process of setting up the structure in their lives. This is something that's very important. So even with their bedtime, you have a certain range that you know is good. You're not going to let your five-year-old sleep at midnight, even if that's what they want. But you have a range of what you think is okay. And the three of you together, parents and child, can have a discussion about, okay, well, what time do you think is good for you to fall asleep? And, you know, the kid might say really late, like 11 p.m., and you say, oh, you know, I know it's so fun being up at night, but we have to make sure you get enough sleep so that when you wake up and you go to school, you have energy. And you could even remind them of a day they didn't sleep well and how they didn't feel so good. And you, you engage them in this conversation. And this is good for a few reasons. One is you're showing your child you value their thoughts and their opinions and that they should do that also. But also we know that when anyone, but especially children, are involved in creating the rules or the structure in their lives, they're much more likely to, to follow that. And they follow it much more hap happily and willingly. I set my bedtime at 8.45, so I want to go to sleep at 8.45. Not my parents are forcing me to go to sleep at 8.45, so even if I'm tired, I'm going to resist and fight that because now I'm in a power struggle with my parents and I'm going to make sure that I win. And this itself is something that I hope parents talk about before that we don't, being an authoritarian parent where I'm going to tell my kids, this is the land, the law of the land. And you have to sleep at this time because I said so, or do this or don't do that because mommy or daddy says so. I would hope you don't take on that style of parenting that you might be authoritative and that you have um, a, a differential between you and the kids and how you're running the household. But at the same time, you want the kids to feel that they can be open with you, that they're going to talk to you, and we're going to explain things to our children. We're not just going to say, this is the rule, this is how it has to be. We're going to tell our child the reason why you can't go out at night because it's dark out there and we can't see and maybe you can fall. Or the reason why you can't sleep at this time is because everyone needs their sleep to, to rest and recover, but also you're growing and we have to make sure you get enough sleep. So we're going to explain to our child how things go, not just say, this is what mommy or daddy says, so you have to listen. So as parents or potential future parents, as exciting of a prospect as it is to have a baby and bring that bundle of joy into your life, just know that, of course, there's a lot of medical preparation and appointments that you have. And as I said before, the room and the house, you might change a lot of things, but make sure you're putting a lot of time into talking together about how are we going to be as parents? What are we going to do and what are we not going to do? And your responsibility as a parent begins way before the child is even born because you have to do your work, your research, your preparation, and your collaboration with your partner to make sure that you're prepared to be the best parent you can be and you together can be the best parental unit that you can be 
for your children. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. You know, I was talking the last segment about preparing to be parents and how important it is that before the child is born to actually have lots of conversations and to to study and to prepare together as parents on how we are going to be parents to this child and potentially our future children. And so I thought today could also be a preparation day in general because even before the kids come, well, if you're getting married, you want to make sure you prepare for that as well because uh, many people think of marriage as a finish line um, and they think as long as they have the wedding, everything is okay and now they've won at life or they've reached this goal or this accomplishment. But as I always say, the wedding is not the finish line, the wedding is the starting gun. Um, and lots of Persians make that a very big starting gun. But whatever the case may be, that's really when your life together is beginning and you're going to be facing all the challenges and obstacles you're going to face. So although for many people, they think the whole purpose is to find that right one and to make it work so that they get married because that's all they want is to get married. And in a lot of families, especially a lot of Persian families, they think we just need our sons and daughters to get married and we're, we're so happy because that's their finish line. We have to recognize that this is not the case. Your hard work is only just beginning and you have to be prepared for that so we want to make sure we're preparing for our marriages as well many people have a few myths about marriages and how they work they think well if you're right for each other and if it's meant to be then it should just work out it shouldn't be so difficult and you hear people say that a lot uh, this is just too difficult. I don't think this means we're right for each other. And especially they feel this way when they're in the midst of a relationship with someone, but they think of having an affair with someone else or when they're just flirting with someone at the office and everything seems so simple. They're like, gosh, it should just be this way, not the way it is with my husband or wife at home where we fight about everything, not realizing that, well, with that person, when you have a superficial relationship, yes, not a lot goes wrong and there's not a lot of stress or issues to deal with. But if you create a relationship with that person, you'll soon find that marriage is hard work. Even in, with two people who are a good match for each other, marriage is difficult, marriage is hard work. It's not always rosy and feeling good. In a very healthy relationship, you're going to have rough patches. You're not always going to feel good in the relationship. And we have to have this realistic expectation. Just as we have to have a realistic expectation for our children. If you have a three-month-old and you think because you have this idea, well, babies are so fun and nice, they should never be difficult, and then your baby's crying all the time, and you're like, well, there's something wrong with my baby because babies shouldn't cry. But that unrealistic expectation is actually going to make you become a bad parent, just like an unrealistic expectation about a marriage being always lovely and beautiful and easy is going to make you a bad partner or make you potentially walk away from a marriage that is good or could be worked on. So we have to re recognize that, yes, we spend a lot of time to find a partner that is compatible with us, that we match well, that we can work well together. But that doesn't mean that just because we found the right, right partner, everything is happily ever after easily. We can create an happily ever after, but it does take work. So we have to be ready for that. Any marriage 
is going to be hard work and we have to be willing to accept that and understand that that's what we have to undertake. So first of all, find a partner that sees it that way. Now, I work with a lot of people, or if you talk to anyone, everyone says, I want to work at the relationship. I'm going to work at the marriage. I want to work on it. And it sounds very nice and cliche, but most people don't actually do the work or really see what that work is. So what is some of that work during the relationship and before the relationship? Well, some of that involves, first of all, understanding relationships in general. And so just like I was saying with the parenting, you want to read books, um, go to seminars, and I would highly recommend premarital counseling, which I'll talk about, to prepare yourself for understanding what relationships are and what they are not. What does the research show about what works, what doesn't work? What communication styles are helpful, which ones are not? Um, I talked on Monday's show about being passive, being aggressive, and being assertive. We know that assertive and clear communication is the best. And also, any kind of communication that has disrespect or disgust or contempt is going to be like a poison for the relationship. So you start to recognize that there are real things that we can learn. Yes, every relationship is unique, and we can't say one size fits all for everything. But there are lots of universal truths that we can see that things that are going to hurt your relationship and things that can help your relationship. So before you get married, you do want to do a lot of this preparation work. Talk to your partner about um, how he or she likes to communicate or issues that are hard for them to talk about. Are they a very open person or are they a closed person? And that you have to recognize that. Are they actually a suspicious or jealous person and they know this about themselves and they want to work with you or are they not what are their insecurities like, are they insecure about um, let's say their appearance or how much money they have or their education because this might get triggered in different situations with you when you're interacting with other individuals so you want to understand each other and then also understand each other within the context of a relationship and have these types of of conversations together and part of the quote-unquote work that is involved in a relationship is having these conversations and oftentimes having these uncomfortable conversations during the relationship about ways that you feel, things that you're unhappy about in the relationship, things you'd like to see change, um, concerns you have, whatever it might be. But a big part of the work that it takes to make a relationship work is these uncomfortable and different, difficult conversations. And you want to make sure your partner, first of all, you yourself, but also your partner is on board to have these conversations. Yes, we might not like them very much. They might not feel so good in the moment, but we know we need to have these conversations in order to make this marriage work. So we're both could be committed to having those types of conversations. Are you on board with me? Can you do that with me and for me and for us to make this relationship work? And then see how it goes. And the good news is, as I've said very often before, once you start having these uncomfortable conversations, your discomfort with them becomes less. One, you become more comfortable in the discomfort because you've experienced it before. But secondly, you also have had lots of experiences where we ha you've had these uncomfortable conversations, but they ended well. So your expectation is that this one will go well too. This is going to be okay. Not that this is something really scary and horrible and I don't want to face it, but okay. I know that we can have this conversation and end in a good place, even if sometimes in the process it doesn't feel very good. 
So you want to have all these types of conversations and make sure your partner's on board with that. It's very important that you can have those conversations. And you know, people sometimes say, I can't have this conversation with my partner. Either that means your partner can't tolerate them, which is a problem, or there's something between you guys that doesn't let you have these conversations, but that's a bad sign. I work with a lot of couples and they haven't had a lot of very important conversations. Some of it's just that they've avoided them because they're uncomfortable, but also sometimes they find they can't even communicate about certain topics. They just don't have that ability to talk about these things and something is going on. So if you see that in your relationship, don't just think, oh, you know, they don't like it. Or let's say a woman might say, oh, he's just a man. Men don't like talking about things. Maybe, yes, men have a harder time talking about some issues emotional issues, relationship issues, but you need a partner that is okay and willing to have those conversations to make your relationship work. Don't just say, well, he's a man. He can't have those, those conversations. It doesn't really matter. You have to be willing to have those. Now, another part of the preparation process to be, uh, to, to give your marriage the best chance of working is to do premarital therapy, premarital counseling. Um, research shows that it leads to more satisfying relationships and it decreases the likelihood of divorce. So there's really something there, something you get out of it. Uh, so often I hear when I bring up premarital counseling, well, well, if you need therapy before you even got married, well, then you're really in trouble. How bad is your relationship if you already need therapy? But when we talk about premarital counseling, we're not saying because your marriage and your relationship is in such bad shape, go see a therapist. We're saying go there to give your marriage the best chance of survival. Just like you might get a teeth cleaning, not because your teeth are so bad, but to promote the health of your mouth, your dental health. We're saying do the same thing in giving your relationship the best chance you have. Go work with a professional, 8, 10, 12 sessions to give yourself the best chance to have the relationship work. And there's a few goals we can look at when it comes to, to premarital counseling. The first one is, well, let's really make sure we are a good match. Let's meet with a therapist. Let's talk about ourselves, talk about our relationship, how things are going, and really make sure we are a good match. Very often people that get married and then get divorced, if they really took a closer look at their partnership and how they were for one another, would see that they weren't a good match at all, that they could have predicted that this was not going to work. And if they really looked closely at what was going on, they would have chosen not to get married in the first place. So that's one part of it, which I think does actually scare some people because again, some people are so attached to this idea of, I just need to get married for myself to make my family happy. And maybe for some other goals I might have, like having children that I don't want to risk the possibility of losing what I have when I'm so close to that uh, elusive finish line, because I think that's all I need to do. But I would hope people recognize that it's much better to be or to not get into a bad marriage and to get into a bad one. And if we know it's not going to work out, we want to prepare ourselves for that and actually make that decision not to stay together. So that is, to me, a big part or the, one of the initial things you figure out in, in premarital counseling is, okay, are we a good partnership? And sometimes you might not realize that till the end of it when you really start to unravel your issues. And that could be part two. Every couple has issues. Very happily married couples have issues. They even have issues that they never resolve. As John Gottman talks about in his book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, there's lots of unresolvable conflicts that couples have. We might think that every issue has to get solved. Every 
issue has to be agreed upon. But he finds that even in very happy marriages, very often people just find there's some issues they can't see completely eye to eye on, but they can respect each other's positions and learn to live with it. So every couple has issues. And in therapy, in the premarital counseling, you can start to recognize, well, first of all, can we resolve some of these already? And that can be good because we know that issues don't disappear in marriage. They actually just become bigger. I'm sure you've heard it yourself so many times. Someone says, oh, you know, she would do this, but I thought when we got married, it would get better. Or he would always do this, and I thought it would kind of go away when we got married, but no, it actually got worse. Um, just like if you don't go to the dentist to clean up that tooth, the cavity doesn't go away. The cavity just becomes bigger and might turn into a root canal or a tooth that can't be recovered. And that tooth, in this case, is your marriage. The, the issues don't go away. They become bigger, and it can actually uh, kill your marriage and make you have to end that marriage. So we shouldn't assume that issues are going to go away. We should actually assume the opposite. They're going to get worse. They're going to get bigger. They're going to get harder to deal with and become more of a challenge. So we want to see if we can solve some of those issues and also see if some of the other maybe unresolvable issues or themes of our conflicts, how big of a deal is that going to be? Is that could be something that our marriage can withstand or not? And lastly, in premarital counseling, you also learn some positive things about how to make a relationship work. As I was saying before about communication, things not to say and things that we should say. Um, ways of communicating that are harmful, for example, aggression and um, strong anger that is rageful, and ways that are better, such as being vulnerable and opening up to one another, using I statements when we talk, making sure we take each other's sides when we have a disagreement, meaning that I don't just focus on me, 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 but we take a break and I say, okay, let me make sure I'm understanding your side and let's make sure you understand my side of this disagreement and how we can diffuse this argument rather than escalating into some kind of resolution. So that's another big thing you get out of premarital counseling is you start to learn together, and that's a good part of it. If you're learning it on your own, it doesn't have the same effect as when you learn it together and it becomes a part of the culture of your relationship with your partner. This is how we're going to talk to each other because we both learned this is going to be best for us. These are things we're going to try to avoid. And again, we're, as the parents are a team, you as a couple are a team as well. And we want to work together in the best ways that we can to make sure we get to the best place that we can or keep this marriage as happy and healthy as we can. Another benefit, in my opinion, about premarital counseling is now you've introduced this idea that going to therapy together is okay and it works and it's something that we can do. So if a few years down the line in your marriage, you start to hit a rough patch and you're not able to really resolve things on your own, you both know that therapy is an option and something that we have done and we can do it again together. And hopefully you'll be willing to take that, that leap or that chance to then go into therapy and work together to make things work and to go and see if you can make things better for yourself. So premarital counseling is something I'm very much in favor of. Um, if you're in a family and your children bring it up, don't think about, oh, it looks bad if our kids need therapy before they get married. Think they're doing something smart to make things better. So recommend it to them. And if you're in a relationship, think about it for yourself. We need to prepare for this being, uh, you know, the marriage rate, the divorce rate is what, 50%. And I know sometimes those statistics are hard to, to understand fully, but that's it's pretty high. Lots of marriages don't work. And so we want to give ourselves the best opportunity and the most, the highest likelihood of making the marriage work. And that does take work. 
and we have to be willing to put that in to get something back in return. So yes, finding the right person is very difficult. It's not an easy thing to do, but don't think that your job in getting married or having a wedding stops and just finding the right person. It's up to you to help create a good relationship, but then also prepare for a good marriage, which does take a lot of work. Make sure you have a partner who's willing to do that work, not just say they're willing to do the work, but actually do the dirty work and making the relationship work and keeping things going and then prepare together to make a healthy and happy marriage and be prepared to continue having to do that work throughout your marriage to give your guys the best chance of having a good marriage. So hopefully if you're listening and you're in a relationship and you're thinking about marriage, you'll think about premarital counseling and start having these conversations with your partner. And if you have a family member, I hope you give them that recommendation as well. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. Back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi, studio number 310-441-0555. So I talked about uh, getting ready for parenting, and then I talked about getting ready for your marriage, um, and talking about therapy in both of those contexts. Now also looking at therapy at ourselves, or for ourselves, as I've mentioned before, most people think of therapy as somewhere you go to fix problems. Therapy is somewhere where you go because you have issues. And unfortunately, although the stigma has been reduced in recent generations or recent decades, we know the stigma is still very strong. I know for a lot of my clients, uh, when they talk about going to therapy, or if you ask them, they say they haven't told a lot of people that they go to therapy, or they are still a little bit embarrassed to tell people they go, because we have this strong stigma, something that I... um, I think it's very harmful because many people will say that I don't go to therapy because of the stigma or I delayed going, meaning that they were in pain, they were hurting, but yet they didn't get the help that they deserved that they could have had. Not only that, many people are very good. They be, they tell, tell me they believe in therapy, but for other people, <laughs> they'll say, I think therapy is it's wonderful. Of course it works, but no, not for me. And we tend to see ourselves in a different way. I'm very complicated or... Uh, you know, oh, for me, it's just going to, it's too weird to talk to someone, but I invite, I tell all my friends to go and I encourage people to go. Now, um, just to make sure I, I exonerate myself that I'm not that type of person, I do go to my own therapy and I'm very happy that I do. And I've been going for a while and I think I continue will go for a while because I think it is a wonderful process. But if you are one of those people, I would hope you think about that a little bit because the process of therapy is not just about helping you with problems. Yes, if you're depressed, if you have anxiety, it definitely can help in reducing those things. But bigger than helping fix problems, it's about self-awareness and knowing yourself better. 
in understanding yourself. Most people actually don't know themselves well at all. They don't know who they really are and who they want to be or what's going on in their lives. Now, therapy is very important for understanding ourselves, but also we have to have that attitude towards ourselves in general. And this is an idea, we can talk about self-awareness, but also the process individually of self-reflection, of looking at ourselves more closely. Most people don't like to do this. We don't like to even really be alone with ourselves. And this is actually why many people avoid meditation, as I've talked about before. They don't like the idea of sitting alone with themselves and feeling what they feel and thinking what they think. Most people are actually even afraid to know what they actually would dream to do if they could do anything. Because once I think about it and realize it, well, uh, now i got to do the hard work of trying to make it happen. So most people actually are afraid of their own dreams. I know that sounds strange. We think you'd be afraid of a nightmare. But oftentimes we're afraid of our own dreams because once I know my dream, then I have to try to make it a reality. Now I know that truth. But if I just stay miserable in what I'm doing, I can just say, well, I just don't like what I'm doing or pretend like I'm not that miserable and just keep going about my way of doing whatever it is I'm doing. So the process of self-reflection is actually a lot scarier than I think most people think. It's a lot more intimidating than people think, and that's why most of us do avoid it. And that's why therapy can be so helpful, because you have someone that helps pushes you a little bit deeper and asks the questions that really get you to reflect, and they can always see things that we're not going to be able to see ourselves. We can never be fully objective with ourselves, and that's one of the reasons that having a therapist can be helpful. So self-reflection is good, as I was just mentioning, and I do recommend that we want to be in that process. But there's only so far we can go in reflecting on our own. You know, so often people come in and they've thought about an issue for maybe even years, but just within one session, a therapist can give a different perspective that they've never even thought about once, or they didn't realize their blinders were on about a certain aspect of the issue and they weren't even seeing any of it. You know, the therapist can help turn on a light or face you in a different direction to see a whole different horizon that you were missing because you were only looking one way or one part of the picture. You weren't seeing the whole thing. So we want to change that mindset of looking at ourselves. And not only are we afraid of our dreams, as I was saying, many of us are afraid of our own potential or what we can do. M most people have a ambivalent relationship to their own greatness, to their own potential. Now, by that I mean, of course, if you ask anyone in their daydreams, they'll think of themselves as a rock star or celebrity or rich or famous or whatever it might be. They have these daydreams about it, but they're afraid to actually have it. They might be afraid that they don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of having that. Or also they might be afraid to have to compete to get it. Many of us, although we um, think we want much more, we're afraid to put ourselves in the situation or the position to try to get more than we have or to get what we tell ourselves we want. Again, another reason not to actually even know what we want because then we won't have to face these fears, face these uncomfortable situations. For example, if you are a baseball player, you're in the minor leagues and you're thinking, oh, I always want to be in the majors. My dream is to be in the major leagues, in the top level. 
That's been my whole dream. But I'm sure when someone gets called up and they say, okay, you're going to go to the major leagues, as much as they are very excited, this has been maybe a lifelong dream, there is that anxiety of, well, do I deserve to be there? Can I keep myself there? Am I going to be good enough? And that's a very scary thing to face. As long as you're never given the opportunity to see your true value or what you can do, well, at least you can always think, what if? But if you face it, then you might actually face the reality of, well, this is how far I can go. And many of us are afraid to push ourselves to see how far we can actually go. We're much more content just accepting things as they are. Well, this is who I am. This is what I can do. Not realizing, well, maybe I can try something different. Now, another aspect when we talk about this fear, in a way I alluded to before, is a fear of failure. I don't want to try something because I might fail at it. And if I don't succeed and if I fail, then I'm a loser, I'm worthless, whatever other associations we have with making mistakes or with not succeeding. And we don't want to feel that. So it's easier to try something we already know we can do or not push ourselves very hard or push ourselves very far because, well, that way we can avoid this fear of failure. I was actually talking to Rahman um, before the show, and he passed a very difficult class. And I was really proud of him because it was a very difficult, challenging class, a class I've never had to take, but he passed it. And, you know, I'm sure there could have been a fear of failure of not passing it, but he had to face that in order to take it and then pass the class and have this accomplishment. It could have been easier for him to say, eh, maybe it's just not for me or I don't want to do it or I won't even try it. And he would have felt safer, but he always would have had that nagging regret of uh, could I have or couldn't I have? I wish I did it or I you know, wish I pushed myself to get there. So facing that fear of failure, again, like I was talking about in working in a relationship, it sounds very easy. Everyone can say it, but it is a very, it could be a terrifying fear. It could be a paralyzing fear. And for most of us, that is the case. And that is something that we have to change our relationships with if we want to be successful. It can almost sound uh, ironic or like an oxymoron, but to be successful, you have to be willing to fail. You have to fail. You have to try things to see how far you can go. You know, really only when you try to go as far as you can go and you reach that limit, can you know the, the limits or the potential that you have. If you don't try hard, if you never fail, you really don't know what you can do. And many of us like that feeling of safety of knowing we're going to succeed, knowing we're going to be safe, but safety never leads to big progress or big change in any area of our lives or in the world. We have to be willing to risk. So, you know, now that I'm shifting the conversation about failure, this is such an important thing for parents to instill in their children that it's not just about the A's, it's about, okay, did you get a bad grade and what did you do now to make it better? And it's not even bad that you got the bad grade, that's okay. It's not a disaster, it's not a horrible thing. But what are you going to do now? Parents think that they have to protect their children from failure at any cost. Okay, they're on a soccer team, well, they have to get a trophy at the end of the year to say they were also the best, everyone was the best which doesn't even mean anything. I don't know how everyone could be the best. And actually even that itself, I think, is a mistake to think that they need to be the best. Okay, maybe you're not very good at soccer. That's okay. Did you have fun? Did you try hard? Did you make friends on the team? That's wonderful. And the other team, they scored more goals. Well, they won the game. 
that's okay. Teach them that, that you do lose sometimes. I would much rather have a kid lose and then try harder the next year and become better and maybe even lose again, but get closer to the victory than to tell them they won the first time just because we don't want them to feel sad. And I've mentioned this very, very often before, but this has to do with our own relationship with the quote-unquote negative feelings that we think they're so painful and so bad we have to avoid them that we think we have to make sure our kids don't feel them either. I think, you know, even as a young kid, they lose the game and they might be crying. I think that's okay. You talk to them about how they feel that they lost. Oh, you lost the game. You really wanted to win. I get that. You and your team, you guys tried really hard and you wanted to win. That's a good thing to want to try your best, to work with your team. And even I saw that you were very respectful to the team that won and you shook their hands. That's great. I'd much rather have that conversation with a kid than to say, oh, we don't keep score. Everyone wins. Here's your trophy. Here's their trophy. It looks the same. Everyone go home as happy and no one feel a bad feeling. No, I don't think that's going to help them with anything. Show them that you... If you didn't win, well, what do you want to do if you want to win next time? How do we work harder? Because your child, just like yourself, is going to face obstacles, is going to fall down. And it's not about if we fall because you will, it's how we get back up that really defines us and determines who we are. I mean, you know, it's almost cliche to talk about, but you look at all the, so many successful people, whether it's in business or sports or acting, and you can look at how many failures they had, and then they came back. If you just stopped there, you would say, oh, you're just a failure. Michael Jordan didn't make it to his basketball team, I think, when he was a sophomore or freshman, and then he turned out to be the greatest basketball player of all time. So if he looked at that failure and someone said, oh, it's failure, it's bad, or if they wanted to not let him feel bad about it, well, then he wouldn't have succeeded. Or he even said himself that he was trying to win the NBA championship, and they kept losing to the Detroit Pistons, and he saw that in one of the series where they lost, he just wasn't strong enough physically to withstand the physical punishment they were putting him through. And he said, that's when I started to work out even harder in building my strength. And that helped create the greatest basketball player of all time. He became stronger as a result of it. So wasn't he failed and he just said, oh, that's bad. Or let's say if you were his parents and he said, oh, no, it's okay. You're still the best. Nothing wrong happened. They cheated or you made some something to make him feel better in the moment, you would have been doing him a disservice. He said, no, I wasn't good enough. I can actually be better. And that's going to push me to be better. So if you fail, rather than that being a failure that you are bad at your core, which is unfortunately when we have low self-esteem, what we think, we should rather say, okay, well, what can I do to become better? I failed this time, but I'm not a failure. I can become better. I can become stronger. What can I do next? And for many of us, it's not going to be about lifting weights or becoming a better basketball player, but it might be, I have to study harder, right? Rather than protecting your child from getting a bad grade, I'd rather they get a bad grade and realize they didn't try hard enough and they need to try harder next time. Rahman is sitting here and I'm looking at him. He had to try harder and he did and he passed his class and that's wonderful. And all of us have had experiences like that where we had to recognize I didn't do enough. I can do more. It's not that I'm not enough. I didn't do enough and I'm going to try even harder to make that happen. So whether it's yourself or your children, don't try to protect them from failure and from losing. Get them to see the value of hard work. Get them to see the value of recognizing what happened and facing the reality of what happened. And okay, you want to protect them when they're six, seven, and eight in soccer games. Well, as they get older, they're going to face real realities of the world. It doesn't always just work out in our favor. Things don't always just end up pleasant and easy. Sometimes we get disappointed. Sometimes we fall down, but we want to teach them to get back up. 
and we want to make sure we don't lose sight of our own dreams. Don't think that because I might fail, because I might not be able to make my dream a reality, I'd rather not know what is there. Close your eyes and really think what that dream would be for you. And then it's up to you that when you wake up or you open your eyes to then make that dream a reality so that it is in front of your eyes at some point. You have that power and it is up to you to make that happen. So we have to not be afraid to dream and not be afraid of our own potential and of course not be afraid to fail because that's the only way we can actually get to success. The path to success has lots of failure along the way but that makes that when you get to that success even more meaningful and feel and taste even more sweet. All right, we've reached our last commercial break for the show. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. In the last segment, I talked about failure, our fear of failure, and how it holds us back from actually reaching success. Um, and success, even as I say the word, I'm sure a lot of images come into people's head of what success is, what it looks like, um, and what it means. Now, unfortunately, I think when most people hear the word success, we think of wealth or someone who's rich and famous. That's usually success stories we think about are someone who makes a lot of money and becomes famous. And I think that's very unfortunate because that's not really what I think of when I think of success. I think someone can make a lot of money and actually not be a success and someone could not have a lot of money and be very, very successful. Because success to me means something different than the typical definition. To lead a successful life means one, to fulfill all of our roles and responsibilities in our life to a high standard, so being successful in those different roles. And then professionally, success doesn't mean to me wealth and fame. It can include those things, but it's reaching your potential and also reaching your potential in the field that taps into your own personal strengths and your unique abilities. So you can be um, a very successful uh, let's say plumber and doesn't mean you have to be famous or even have lots of money but if you're doing it to the best of your ability that could be better than someone who is a ceo making millions of dollars but really not being a good father or, or wife or a good uh, you know parent and not being you know good to their people that they're working with so success to me shouldn't be about how much money you make or how much money you have in the bank and success is much more about the individual. We can't say there's one measure of success for everyone. So I can tell you that person A is more successful than person B because they have more money. Because it is unique to the individual. And really, this isn't just about success, but in a way, a purpose of life is that we're supposed to do everything we can to reach that potential. So rather than life being a race where we see who went the farthest or who went the fastest, Really, we've been each given a cup that is our potential, and our job is to fill that cup as much as we can. And I don't know how your cup looks or my cup is. My job is to just fill it up as much as I can, and I can't compare what I have to you. Two people can get an A on a test, but one of them had to really try hard 
uh, the one barely studied at all, I don't consider those two A's as equal. They, they do represent different things. The one who studied harder to me is more successful than the person who didn't have to try as hard or didn't try as hard to get that A. So we can't look at our life this way that we compare it to other people. One of the, the many reasons why we shouldn't compare ourselves with others, it does lead to us usually feeling much more unhappy. But one is we don't even know the circumstances and the potential of the person next to us. So we feel satisfied, okay, good, I, I got this, or I have this much, or I did this well, and whatever it might be. Well, maybe you were supposed to do far better. And if you just compare yourself to someone else, you're not going to actually get an understanding of who you can be or who you are supposed to be. But also, as I was saying, for me, it's important that whatever role you find, it's something that means something to you and uses your unique abilities. But unfortunately, when we focus just on an index like money to determine how successful you are, well, this influences the types of roles people take. They might think, well, I'd be, I think, very good as a social worker and could create a lot of positive change. And I think that uses my, um, my best qualities in a good way. But I'd make more money doing this job, so I'm supposed to do that to become more of a success. Now, does money matter? Of course, we still do need money to survive and to take care of things and to buy things and to make the world go around to a certain extent. But I think the problem is that when we make money the def definition of success, we affect the paths that people take, the careers they choose, the jobs they take, because they think at some level I'm being more successful by going towards this job because it pays me $10,000 more than this job, which pays me less. Even if this one is more fulfilling, I contribute more. It taps more into my own unique potential as an individual. So I'd hope we change that definition of success, that it isn't about how much money you have in the bank, but really how much of your cup that you fill. So it's not how much of your bank gets filled, but how much of that cup you fill based on what you're doing in reaching your potential. And you have to ask yourself that, is what I'm doing really using my potential in the right way? And for me, what's also very important is what I'm doing, contributing to society in a better way. Um, I do a class with teenagers that just wrapped up for the summer a couple weeks ago. And for the last class, I said, let's, let's keep it pretty light. Let's talk about the purpose of life. That was our, our topic for the day. And I was very inspired by the things that these um, youngsters said, as I always am. I learn more from them than I can teach them. But a lot of them talked about doing something that benefited others that contributed to society in some way that this to them was part of the meaning of life is to to help make the world better than when they left it and to make sure they're doing something that gives to people in some way that was some that was things that they came up with among, amongst other things and i completely agreed with those sentiments and those ideas that you should have a purpose that is related to helping others and even in your career Unfortunately, when we focus on how much money we can make, it's more about how much we can take rather than how much we give. You can make lots of money, you can have lots of fame, but hopefully it's for doing something good and contributing something good to other people. To me, that's a big part of success. Now, another aspect of success that I mentioned before, you know, we usually think of success just about someone's career. If someone's a billionaire, they're successful. If they're poor, they're unsuccessful. But for me, even more important than that is how they're fulfilling the roles in their lives. If you're a mother or a father and you're not being a good parent, to me, I don't consider that a successful life. 
doesn't matter how many billions of dollars you have or if you're the number one, you know, let's say tennis player, the number one, whatever your profession is. Yes, you're successful in that specific thing. But I don't consider you a success if you've neglected your children. To me, that's not a successful life. A successful life involves fulfilling all your roles to a high degree. And especially, I would say, we can prioritize those roles. If you're a good mother or father and a good husband or wife, that to me is much more an indication of a successful life than if someone has lots of money or is the best at their career. Because although I don't want to say there's luck in, in our careers or say everything is luck, there's some degree of luck. Whereas what kind of parent you are is completely in your control. That's up to you. The relationship you have with your child, that's definitely up to you. Yes, there's an interaction between you and your child, and sometimes it can be different, and people who have more than one child will experience this, that they maybe can't be the same parent to both kids and really have the same results because the kids are different. So I get that. There is something there. But much more of it is in your control of what kind of parent you are and what kind of partner you are to your husband or your wife. Are you caring towards them? Are you loving towards them? Are you being respectful towards them? That's in your control. Now, if you lose your job, if there's downsizing, other things happen, there's some of it that's out of your control. So I don't, and I don't want to say, oh, it's totally out of your control. If something like that happens, you might fall, but it's up to you to get back up. But still, it's not completely in your control. But what kind of father you are, who else, who else can we blame uh, on that? Or who else has responsibility for that? Yes, your own upbringing is going to affect you. You have a lot of things going on, but now it's up to you to do what you can to make sure you're the best that you can be. But most people don't prioritize these roles, especially oftentimes men don't think these roles matter, how they are as a husband or how they are as a father is less important as this uh, idea of being a success financially, being a good businessman. And I don't just blame the men for this because this is a societal type of pressure that we have, that we focus more on that. When we think of some of the most quote-unquote successful people in the world, very often they aren't good parents or good partners, but we still consider them a success. So men are encouraged to strive for a type of success that I think leaves the people around them very often very unhappy, and especially the most important people in their life. Uh, I've said this before, if you ask me to tell you if someone is a success or not, I'm not going to look at their bank account. I'm going to ask their kids what kind of a dad they are. I'm going to ask their husband or the wife what kind of partner they are. I'm not just going to look at that number and say, oh, they're worth $280 million. What a success. Yes, they're a financial success, but that doesn't tell me if they're a successful person. Not only that, even if you have $280 million in the bank, uh, doesn't mean much to me. First of all, how are you getting that money? Many people make money doing things in a bad way. So if you're cheating or stealing to make money, that's not successful to me. Successful means also living a good life and being a good person. Someone could have far less money, but doing it the right way to me, it's much more successful. So again, but because we make that final net worth so important, people are willing to do horrible and bad things to get that because they want that status, that uh, appreciation, acknowledgement that they are a success. People usually know who's the richest man in the world. We, we care about these types of things because it means something to us. But unfortunately, when we put that value on things that your success as an individual is based on how much, how what your assets are and how much you're worth, 
it's actually even funny like now that I'm saying it, how much you're worth, right? But that's how much you have financially, not how much you're worth as a person. But the way we describe it or define it, it makes it seem like how much you're worth is how much money you have. To me, how much someone is worth is their character, what kind of person they are, what are the things they repeatedly do, how do they treat the people around them, how is this person as a mother or a father, as a person in society, the things they care about. That's what someone is worth. But when we ask someone, if I say that out of the context of this conversation, people immediately think, what are their assets? How much do they have in the bank? And how much real estate or properties do they have? That's how much they are worth. So I think that's an indication of how much we value money and finances in defining who people are and if they're successful or not and what their status is. But when you look at yourself and when you look at preparing yourself for your life and for your future, I hope when you think about, well, what will my worth be when I'm 70 or 80 years old? You don't think about how much you're going to have in the bank account. You think about what kind of relationships you've created, how you've treated the people that matter to you, especially how have you fulfilled that role as a mother or a father? What will my, my kids say when they're adults about the kind of mom or dad I was? What would my husband or wife say about the partner I was to them when I'm on my deathbed or they're on their deathbed? That's what you're worth. How have I treated people that can't do anything for me in return? How much love have I shown to people or try to make things better in this world that I'm living in? That's your worth. Essentially, the accumulation of all of those good acts and deeds that you have done, you can imagine you have a bank account that each time you do something good or nice, that accumulates into a type of a bank account. And that's our worth. So when you ask yourself this 80-year-old man, how, what's his worth? You could maybe say something like, oh, 5,600,000 nice deeds. You know, that would be what their worth would be. Or this many positive interactions with their, their son or their daughter. Or they gave up making some money to spend time with their kids. To me, that would be their worth. So it maybe even means they don't have that financial success or worth in their bank account. But who they are is worth their character. That, to me, is much more important. And I'd hope we strive for that and not only that, we promote that within one another. I know within our our Persian community, we do give so much of a worth to that financial worth. Oh, she should marry him or he should marry into that family because they're worth a lot. They have a lot of money. We put so much value on that, not recognizing, well, the kind of person they are actually directly is going to affect how happy your son or daughter is going to be in that relationship. They'll get used to whatever money they have or don't have, but they'll never get used to being treated poorly or with disrespect and they'll always appreciate being treated with love. So when you think about yourself, measure your worth in who you are and what you do and the good things you do for those around you and especially in fulfilling those important roles in your life and recognize that if your success is measured by your bank account, you're never going to be happy in the long run. All right, we've reached the end of today's show. Thank you to the callers and the listeners. Thank you to Raman here in the studio. Again, the book for this week, A Natural History of Human Morality by Michael Tomasello. Hopefully you'll join me in reading that and we'll talk about it on Monday's show next week. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Halakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.